Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for Sabbath. Thank you for bringing us here today. Thank you for what you've given us and thank you for the opportunity to give back and, and bless us as we, as we talk about your word right now in your name. Amen. Uh, for those of you who have come here to get tips on how to play the lotto, probably the wrong place. Uh, for those who want tips on cryptocurrency, again, wrong place. Sorry, Lincoln, still stay. Um, but money is a really interesting topic because if you're a good Adventist Christian, there are three things we don't discuss, and that's politics, sex, and money. Good, polite Adventists don't come up and start a conversation with you about any of those three things, and you definitely don't talk about them over Sabbath lunch. Uh, maybe at our house sometimes we do, but I digress. Um, it's not something we often talk about. Why? Why do we not talk about money from church? We are bombarded by the media. Um, you know, there are different memes out there all the time. I've always loved this one from the moment I saw it. Um, the talks about wealth and money and, and how it may not make you happy, but it can sure sort of lessen the blow uh, if you have some of it. Who here, who, who here, sitting here today, has ever had a struggle with money? You don't have to raise your hands, but I will. Um, Blake, did you want to raise your hand? Was that, no? Just checking. We've all gone through different stages in our lives. You will have been a small child at some point and your income consisted of what your parents graciously gave you for pretty much doing nothing. Because let's be honest, kids do nothing at home for their pocket money. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> and yet we still give freely to them. And then all of a sudden you start going through stages in life. I know there are people in here who have worked at Macca's and, you know, like handing out all that bacon and all that kind of stuff here to earn some money. Working at pizza places where I first started working as a driver, I remember when I was sort of, I first got my driver's license and we were getting paid pittance. But to you, it was everything because it was your own money. You could spend it how you wanted to. No one was going to tell you what you could or couldn't do with it. Even though your parents may have tried, it was still your money. If I asked today who here would think it would help them if they had a little bit more money, how many hands do you reckon would go up? Or let's swing it around. Who here is willing to put their hand up to say they have all the money they could ever possibly want? You're going to do that in Adventist church? You are going to get hit up for every single project that ever happens in the church again. But I've seen friends not be able to pay bills. I've seen family members struggle. Money can bring both joy and absolute sadness to our lives. There is no question. I've also seen clients, I, I'm lucky enough to have clients who show me a different side of the world that we don't often get to see, where they can drop 20 plus million dollars on a house Nice house, by the way, um, but it's a completely different world. 
To them, it doesn't seem so strange. But coming from where I sit or where maybe you sit in life, it's a very big deal. I remember growing up, and you remember that struggle potentially, where you'd finished high school or you were coming to the end of high school, which I know a lot of you are at the moment, you're going through exams as well. And the big question on your mind was first of all, what grade are you going to get? I am scared for some of you. Um, What grade are you going to get? And then with that grade, what are you actually going to do with it? What is your career going to be over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years? I mean, some of you are millennials. You'll probably have 17 careers over that time. Others of you will be in the one career for the whole time. What are you going to do? And I remember sitting there one time, and I was getting a little bit of pressure to go to Avondale to do theology and was offered um, all expenses paid to go down and do it. And I remember sitting there thinking, I have never once wanted to become a pastor. It had just never crossed my mind as something I actually wanted to do. I always had a desire to do law, to do business. It's just where my passion was. Getting up and arguing with someone, that seems so much more fun than bringing Jesus into their lives. That's just the truth of it. But I remember sitting there thinking, hang on, am I actually putting my own desires of wanting to do business because maybe I could earn decent money? I'm not saying pastors don't. They don't. Um, But (laughs) I didn't particularly want to go through the phase of feeling guilty for the rest of my life thinking, did I just push God off for my own wants and desires? And will I regret this and feel guilty about it for the rest of my life? Luckily, very soon after, it was pointed out to me that I really don't like interacting with new people, and that would be a very bad thing to be as a pastor. So it made me feel a little bit less guilty, and I decided to go into business instead. It's a topic, money, that Jesus speaks about so much. I mean, you remember when he picks up the coin with Caesar's face on it, and people are asking him, you know, where should this money go kind of thing? Why should we give money back to the Romans? There are 500 verses in the Bible that talk about praying and faithfulness. 500 verses. It shows how important it is. There are 2,000 verses that talk about money. And if you look at all of Jesus' parables that he ever told in the New Testament, 40% of them relate to money. 40%. Not a single other topic is spoken about more by Jesus in his time on earth. Why? And yet we don't talk about it now. You'll know some of the verses. I mean, there are some very famous ones that we obviously try and use to make you feel guilty at church as often as we can. Um, You can't be the slave to two masters. Uh, I've tried golf and my wife, doesn't work. Uh, You will likely be one more than the other or you'll be more loyal to one than the other and you cannot serve both God and money. You in your lives today, right this second, will know poor people, those who are less fortunate than you may be monetarily, who may seem happier than you. You may also see people who are richer than you financially, who are less happy than you. 
The interesting thing is when you look at statistics, when it comes to suicide, it is equally proportionate to both those in the lowest socioeconomic brackets and those in the highest socioeconomic brackets. How can that be? It's pretty simple because money doesn't bring happiness. Money is a tool. And thank you for showing my... I have many more tools than just an Allen key and a screwdriver out of interest in my business. Um, but thank you, wife, for that. Money is just a tool. It's a tool that God has given us to use. It can be used for good or for bad. But money itself is neither good or bad. It is amoral. A $5 bill has done nothing wrong in its life. It could be used for wrong or it could be used for good, but it in itself is not wrong. It is a tool for barter. It is for using for trade. It's, that's all it is. In 1987, who here? Put your hands up if you were not born in 1987. Come on, there's got to be... That's, that's a lot of you. 1987, Russ, nine, not 1967. 87. So, 1987, out came a movie which some of you may not have seen, some of you may have heard of, and it starred a guy called Michael Douglas. Big movie actor at the time. And... In that particular year, he also won the Oscar for this particular movie. And he, he won the Oscar against some pretty stiff competition at the time. I, I think he was up against Robin Williams for Good Morning Vietnam, if you've ever heard of that movie. He was up against uh, Jack Nicholson at the time as well, who was one of the other four nominees. And he won, and it was for a movie called Wall Street. He played a guy called Gordon Gecko, who was a stock trader, like a stockbroker. And I want to show you a little clip from that. It's a very famous clip from the movie. Odin, can you see if we can get that first video clip playing there? It should be in the PowerPoint there. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Thank you very much. Greed is good. Greed is good. And he says, evolutionary-wise, greed is exactly what pushes us to do more in this world. Our desire for money, for knowledge, for love, for all these different things is what pushes. He was specifically talking about money. He wanted a lot more of it. And he found a way to get some. And the thing is, with the rise of social media in our world today, what you see on social media tends to be the best of the best, not the worst. And we've spoken about it many times. 
but you don't typically see the worst parts of people's lives on social media. You tend to see the best parts of their lives, the best holidays they've been on, the new shoes that they've just bought, the new car they've just got, the new house they've moved into, whatever, whatever it may be. That's what we tend to see these days. Kids sit down and simply watch YouTube videos of expensive houses and expensive cars now, and to them, that is normal. It is everywhere. Every person here is going to be, will have their own battle with money, good or bad. You will have hated it in your lifetime potentially, and you will have loved it. Typically, there is always somebody who has less than you do, though. And as I scan the room, I do not see Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. There is always somebody, uh, somebody that is going to have more of it than you. Today is not a sales pitch. I'm not, we're not trying to make this talk about your need to give generously to our church, to give generously to anything. I'm not a televangelist here in a shiny suit, and I watched a lot of their stuff this week. Wow. I mean, wow. But that is not what money is to our church, at least. Whether you give or not to our church, I really don't care. The talk today is about whether or not you can use money in a positive way to get a better relationship with God. How you do that, that is up to you. But that's what I really want to talk about today. Can we be sold out to Jesus through money? Paul last week started the series of being sold out to Jesus, sold out to God in various different ways. And you'll hear that over the next couple of weeks as well. But today, can we be sold out, like so passionate about our God that money is not going to stand in our way? Money will actually enhance our relationship with him. Everything's relative. Did you know that yesterday, dear old Elon, who I just spoke about, lost $11 billion? That was his net loss yesterday in a 24-hour period. Jeff Bezos, the guy who owns Amazon, so he lost $6 billion yesterday. $6 billion in one day. And I ask you, how many of you sitting here feel sorry for Elon Musk right this moment now that you realize he lost $11 billion yesterday? That's $11 billion do you feel sorry for him? No. Is that because he still has $190 billion left? That is probably why you don't feel that sorry for him, is it? And yet if I go around most of the people here and tell you that I've just taken $20,000 out of your bank account today, you may feel a little bit angry at me. You may feel a little bit upset. I'll be feeling fine. But you would probably feel sorry for one of your friends if you found out they had just lost $20,000 in a scam. Or $5,000. And yet you don't feel sorry for Elon losing $11 billion. Why is that? Because again, money is simply a tool. It is all completely relative because you know what? You may feel really sorry for that person who lost five, ten, twenty thousand dollars today from church in a scam. But how about that person somewhere in the world earning five dollars a month in wages, 
Would they look at you and feel sorry for you for losing $5,000 today or $20,000 today, considering you still had more left over? It is all relative. If you go to Giving What We Can, I, I like this website. Medium household income in Australia at the moment after tax is $41,000. That's the medium. So that's not average. Let's be very clear here for those who are mathematicians. Do not say anything to me, Bruce. I will get this right. The average is obviously taking everybody's income across the country. That is those people like the Gina Reinhardt of the world earning copious amounts of money and those earning nothing. And that average comes out to about $60,000 per Australian between the ages of six, uh, 18 and 65. However, the median average looks at where you are at compared to the bottom 50%. So 50% of people have less than you and 50% of the population have more of you. And that comes to be $41,000. That puts you in the top 5% richest people in the world right today. And I would suggest that most people, not all, but most people in this room today who are a working adult would earn $41,000 a year in a full-time job. Most, not all. Which means most of this room currently is in the top 5% of richest people in the world. 95% of the world's population have less money than you do. How do you feel about that? And how as Christians do we use that information? The people of Israel were certain that it would be David. I mean, he had led the people to so many victories. He had, he had done so much for God. I mean, here is a man that was rich and powerful. He was feared among nations. Surely David would be the one to build the temple to God. Surely. I mean, of all the kings, he would be the one. So he went to Nathan one night and said, Nathan, the prophet, I want to build this because the Ark of the Covenant is sitting in a tent outside. And I'm sitting here in my palace made of cedar and gold and silver and all these different things. How can this be? We need to build a temple. And Nathan, I mean, this is a whole side note, but Nathan, this God-fearing, honest prophet says, the Lord is with you, go forth. Nathan had it wrong. Because later that night, God came down to Nathan and said, no, no, Nathan, hold the horses. David's not going to be building my temple. He has too much blood on his hands. He has been through too much. He has killed too much to be the person to build my temple. It will be one of his sons. So in 1 Chronicles 28, we see David tell Israel that it was going to be Solomon, not even his firstborn, but it will be Solomon who will actually build this temple. And although David was completely okay with it, it never says that David was jealous or anything. He was actually really pleased that the temple was simply going to be built for God and that it was going to be his son building it. He says in 1 Chronicles 29.1, he says, Solomon is so young and has no experience. That's how he starts his his conversation to the Israelites. He's being a real dad. He's looking at his 20-year-old son, Solomon at the time, and going, well, God said you're going to do it, but man, I'm scared. You don't have the experience. When was the last time you picked up a hammer, Solomon? You've lived in a palace your whole life. How would you know how the average person in Israel lives? 
How are you going to do this? It's my favorite kind of compliment, that backhanded sledge. It just makes you feel good. And David's saying, hey, I'm okay with you doing it, but I'm a little worried. So David, in all of his wisdom, put together a little bit of a care package for Solomon to help him start it. He gave him all the plans of how to build it. He even organized all the people to help him build it. And then he gave him billions of dollars worth of gold, silver, and cedar and everything to actually build it. But then we get to the part of the story that is relevant today. First Chronicles 29.3, because besides doing all of that for Solomon, David does this. David goes and gives his own gold and silver to this project. This isn't the money they've, they've had from Israel. This isn't taxes or offerings or anything like this. This is his personal wealth that he's accumulated over the course of his lifetime. And he was a rich man because he gave 100 ton, 100 tons of gold out of his personal wealth. Now, I mean, obviously gold wasn't worth the same amount that it is today, but in today's money, that's worth billions of dollars. If you had 100 ton of gold in your house right now, not only would we be best friends, but you would be a very, very rich person and you would probably only have 99, 990 tons of gold, or 99 tons of gold by the time I'd come over for lunch. Um, That was out of his personal wealth. God didn't ask him for it. God didn't expect it of him. It was never once mentioned that David then had to give more of his own. He'd already given his time. He'd organized the money. He'd done all of that, but he gave his personal money to this project. And you know what happened when David did that? When he was so passionate, when he was so sold out on the idea of building this temple for God, and he wanted this project to go ahead so badly and gave his own money, which I'm sure his sons weren't overly keen for, you know, if they're anything like us. I mean, how many here love seeing our parents spend our inheritance? How dare they? That was money we've been banking on since we were kids. And then our parents go and some of them live to be really old, inconsiderate. But David is there. And that very act of giving, encouraged, and it says in the next verses, says, yeah, in the next few verses, talks about the government officials, the leaders, all the other people around Israel coming. It said every precious stone in the land was given now to this because they saw David giving his own money Everyone else wanted to give as well. And they raised twice as much money as what David had given by the people who wanted to do the same. David was absolutely sold out to worshipping God by giving him money. Money that was rightfully his. God had blessed David. He'd been a great warrior for God. The money hadn't come from anything dodgy. It never says in the Bible that God was displeased with the money David had. Not at all. And he gave of it free and willing. But David had a great line. This is from David. But why should we be happy that we are giving you these gifts? So this is David talking to God. Because they belong to you and we've only been, we have only given back what is already yours. 
We're only foreigners living here on earth for a while, just like our ancestors were, and we will soon be gone like a shadow that suddenly disappears. David got it. Why are we so pleased that we're simply giving back what you had simply given us to start with? Like we should pat ourselves on the back like, oh, aren't we great? David's like, yeah, I may have just given you a billion dollars worth of gold, but why should I be so pleased about that when it was you, God, who'd allowed that gold to come to me in the first place? You didn't have to. It's easy to give in the good times, and that's what we've just heard about. It is pretty easy. You know, you, you saw the skit that was brilliant this morning, and Daz with his blue tack, that was a, a, great, a great bit. I'm going to use that. Um, but to get that blue tack, to get that $100 bill, you're waving it around, etc. it's really easy to give all the money in the world if you have all the money in the world. And so some people look at the story of David building the temple and go, well, of course, if I had billions of dollars sitting there, I would happily give a billion dollars to God. There was a woman, and she was pacing. She was standing outside a door. She was nervous. She was embarrassed. She was ashamed. She, she didn't know why she was there, but she also completely knew why she was there. You ever had that feeling? You're certain you should be, but you still don't know why. She's pacing around. She's fidgeting. She's, she's wearing thick cloth over her head and she does not want anyone to know who she is or why she's there. She hears all the commotion inside this room. She knows that there's a lot going on there and she knows what it's going to be like because she's been there before, she's done this before, but she's nervous today. Mentally, she's going through turmoil in her head. God, God, I need to know, should I do this? This, is, this could ruin me, but... I feel like I need to do this for you anyway. So she slowly opens the door. She steps in, and there's a lot of faith at this point. She steps into the room, and there it is. All of her fears come true. She's like, please just do not let anyone notice me here, God. That is all I'm asking of you today. Just do not let anyone see me. But in front of her lined up with these men... These filthy rich men, men who had made money from her, men who had made money from all of the people in Israel at the time. Rich, powerful men. And you could see them getting their gold coins, their silver coins, their wealth into their bags. And getting up to the offering box, this large box at the front there where you could give, and these people slowly tipping. You don't want to rush this. You want to enjoy the feeling of all those eyes upon you. And you slowly tip your coins, just clanking one at a time. Oh, that was a big gold piece. Did you hear that, everybody? They're grinning. They're loving this. That feeling of power you get at times in your life. That feeling where you just know you're better than somebody else. And we're human. It makes you smile a little bit, doesn't it? Don't admit it here, but you'll go home and go, yeah, it does. 
It's what we do as kids, isn't it, in the schoolyard. If you feel like somebody is doing better than you or if somebody is better than you or anything like that, the quickest and easiest way to make yourself feel better is not to go and do something great. Cut down the other person. If you just cut them down, then you don't even have to move. You'll just feel better anyway because, you know, they were up here and now they're down here and that was easy. And without these men even saying a word to her, she's been cut down. It's finally her turn. She's walked in. She's like, I can't do this. Turns around maybe to leave and, and is still tormented by, by knowing she wants to do it and, and knowing the reasons why she wants to do it. But there's people behind her now in the line. So she gets up there and she quickly, just so quickly, pushes her two coins into this bowl and moves on. But her greatest fear has been realized because somebody was watching Somebody saw her. Somebody not only saw her, somebody saw what she did. Somebody not only saw her and what she did, but saw into her. And he didn't have pity. He had love. He had compassion. Because he turned to his friends at the time and he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. Now, me knowing what I do about this group of friends, there would have been quite a few of them getting their very big stubby fish fingers and going, huh? What are you talking about? She, she just put in the smallest amount of money from everyone. You're telling me she's put in the most amount of money? Like she's given the most? Did you not see the guy before here, her? Like he was tipping for like 10 minutes. And Jesus said, everybody else gave what they didn't need. They're leftovers. But she is very poor and she gave everything she had. And now she doesn't have a cent to live on. She didn't give out of wealth. She gave out of poverty. And the struggle she had that day was potentially one of, do I put food on the table later tonight or do I still give my worship offering to God? And that is a struggle I genuinely hope none of us in this room or anyone in this world has to experience, but I know you do. I know there are people out there who will have to make that decision of, am I still going to take tithe out when I feel I can't even buy bread this week? Or am I still going to give the last of my offerings to God as a form of worship when I'm not even sure I can pay the bill that I know is coming next week? I don't have answers for that. That's a God thing. But she laid it all out on the line. She was sold out to God in that very moment. And she went, you know what, God? Everything I've got. Everything I've got. And I picture her walking away in tears, going, I don't know how I'm going to do this. But I have a very strong feeling that she was taken care of because Jesus saw her. There are so many churches around the world that, che- that preach things like the prosperity gospel, which you may have heard of. And, you know, big preachers, the Benny Hins, the Joel Osteens of the world, people like that who are quite famous and have, over the course of their preaching time, preached this, this gospel of prosperity 
which says, if you give, the Lord will bless you more in return. The problem that a lot of other Christian churches have with this is that it's in essence acting like an investment firm only. That if I give $10 to the offering today, I'm expecting 20 bucks back next week. So am I actually giving for any of the right reasons or am I just giving so I can become richer? Because I want to give a million dollars next week if it's going to double the week after. And then I'll take that $2 million and I'll put that in so I can get $4 million. And at some point I'll go, I think I've given enough now, God. I've got my $60 million in the bank, I'm good. And all of a sudden you're using the gospel as like a genie in a bottle that's a Ponzi scheme where those at the top are getting rich. Benny Hinn even once said, I, I watched a lot of Benny Hinn this week, a tele-evangelist actually said on one of his shows, and I was absolutely dumbfounded by this, his line was, if you're not a giver, you're a loser. Imagine if your pastor or a preacher or a speaker got up the front today and said, if you're not a giver, you're a loser. He even went on as far to say that people who don't give will find themselves in a very warm ending. If you don't give to God, then that is, you're not worshipping God. And if you're not worshipping God, then you end up in a place that you don't really want to be. But is that truly being sold out for God, to give because you think you're going to get back? And let's be clear, God makes it extremely clear that if we give, and we worship him, we will get riches beyond our belief. But I haven't found a single place in the Bible that says that will be here on earth. Anywhere. Riches will come to you. That is a promise. And I tell you what, if God makes you a promise, I don't think he ever breaks them. So riches will come, but that does not mean that you will have your private jet next week. It might. I, I don't know. If so, I'll give you my number. But is that being sold out in the same way that, say, Zacchaeus was? Here is a man who stole. He pillaged. He took from his own people. He took from any person. He would have taken tax from a dog. It really made no difference to Zacchaeus if he was getting his income. But the very moment Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I want to go to your house for lunch today... Before anything had happened, the first thing Zacchaeus said was, I am going to repay everybody. Not only that, if I've taken money off you, so I'm going to give away half my wealth, and if I've taken money off you, I'm going to pay you back four times what I've cheated you on. Was that him buying grace or buying salvation? No, 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 no. This was a form of prayer and worship because he had just been told by the God of the universe that that God knew him. That that God saw him up a sycamore tree, this small man. And he had been seen. And because of that, his immediate response was to worship. And the way he knew how to worship the best, money. Jesus didn't ask for it. But straight away, you know what Jesus said? Salvation has come to this house today. But it wasn't bought. 
There is a fine line between thinking that Zacchaeus simply paid off for salvation or Zacchaeus simply worshipped through money that day. And Jesus saw that worship. It was powerful. Is money evil? Can be, I guess. But as I said, for me, it's neither good or bad. But I mean, the Bible talks so many different places about, about the fear of money. I mean, you've all heard about getting through the eye of a needle. Or First Timothy here, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Just remember, it's for the love of it. It's not the money. We either worship money or we worship with money. They are two options today, and I'm sorry, but you don't get out of it. This is binary. No matter what the world tells you about there being everything other than binary, this is binary. You will worship with your money or you will worship money. I love this verse from Matthew 6, my goodness. From the seduction of success to the lure of lust, many things in the world vie for our affection, our devotion, but the most dangerous idol we face is money. It doesn't have to be the problem, though. Pretty simple way to get rid of your money problems, and that's to get rid of your money problems. Giving. If you give away the thing that causes you the most amount of pain, how many times does Jesus talk about that in the Bible? That if something is causing you to sin, what do you do with it? What do you do with it? Okay, we need to read the Bible more. So, when Jesus speaks in the Bible and he says, look, you know, your eye is causing you to lust. What does he say to do with the eye? Pluck it out. Get rid of the thing that is causing you to be tempted. And if money is that thing, and it has been in my life, it still may be today and it may be tomorrow, then we need to deal with the money. David, Zacchaeus, and the widow all gave completely different amounts of money out of interest. Billions of dollars, hundreds of thousands in today's, and cents. They gave all in different percentages of their wealth. It never says Zacchaeus gave away everything. He gave away half his income. David doesn't even talk about how many billions he had left over. And the, and the widow with her mites gave everything. But giving all helped them break the bond of money and its potential stranglehold over their lives, even the widow, because she was petrified of money and lack of it. How was she going to provide? And that was the problem. She kept thinking potentially to herself at the time, how am I going to put food on the table? Not how will Jesus or God provide for me to put food on the table? We even have shows that ask us, who wants to be a millionaire? There is a show here. This is a great show. Really good episode. Um, that, anyway, it happened a little while ago. Um, luckily, I only made three million, I think, from that episode. So that was good. No, but anyway, we have TV shows. We have everything going on in this world that points you to go, 
You want more of it. You want more of it. We're constantly asked by the world to earn more, to be more comfortable, to live more luxuriously. And I would suggest that it is probably the way that the devil will trap most of us and it's got nothing to do with spirituality. He's not coming down and debating with me whether or not God is right or wrong. He knows I know that. He's not trying to come down to trick me in any kind of way. He's just being completely upfront. Very much like he was with Eve in that garden. Eve, you want this. You want it. And as soon as somebody says to you, hey, you want this, or you should want this, all of a sudden you start thinking, do I? Should I? Or maybe I do. I guess my last point is the interesting thing with money, God doesn't need any of it. He didn't need those two mites from the widow. He didn't need David's gold. He didn't need Zacchaeus to give back all of the money. He could have provided for all the people Zacchaeus had ripped off. First Timothy 6.5 been reading it up here. People think religion is supposed to make you rich. It does make your life rich by making you content with what you have. Those who want to be rich fall into all sorts of temptations and traps. The love of money causes all kinds of trouble. Some people want money so much they've even given up their faith and caused themselves a lot of pain. But it can also be a love language to God. We can be sold out with money. We can be sold out for God with money that we want to give back to him. And Job, the rich man, was, I mean, he, he was the, the richest person in the East at the time. He had all of his problems. And what did God do to his wealth after he came out of those trials and tribulations? Anyone remember? Come on, we got like 15 pastors in here. He doubled it. He literally doubled Job's wealth. So, <coughs> excuse me. Job went from being the richest person in the East to now being the richest person with twice as much money in the East. Now, why would God do that if money was going to cause Job to lose his connection to God? Because it doesn't have to. He knew that for Job, it was not going to cause him an issue with his relationship with God. That's all this is. Will this get in the way of you and God or will it not? If it won't, then God may be able to give you lots so that you can distribute that wealth and help out those who are in need. Because at the end of time, what Matthew 25 says, when he returns, what are some of the questions he's going to ask you? And a lot of them require money. Where were you when I was naked? Did you go and buy me clothes? Where were you when I was hungry? Did you go and buy me food? It's all about worship. And for the widow, that was two small mites. For David, it was so much more. We are blessed to have a church. I, I truly think we are blessed to have a denomination where money is not what is preached all the time. I think we need to talk about it more. But this is not a church where we're going to say to you, if you give, you're going to be blessed here on earth because that is not true, we believe. 
And how do I know it? Because I can look around, I guarantee you, there are people in this room who have some of the best relationships with God and he has not blessed them with money. But those blessings will come one day. Maybe not here on earth. For those who have money, maybe it's the trial God is giving you on this life, on this journey in this world. What are you going to do with that money? How do you use it wisely? Because how many parables did Jesus tell about taking talents and doing something with them? The people who buried them, cut them down. How dare you just bury what I've given you? Or use it wisely, enhance other people, do other things. Today, when you leave, my question to you is, Can you be sold out on money with God? Is that something you can use as a powerful tool for worship? Or is it something that will simply take you away from him? And once once I believe we can all answer that question, our relationship with money will become better and our relationship with God will become better. Because it is one thing you deal with every single day of your life. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to pray today that You are with us. You guide us with our decisions when it comes to money. We pray that you give us the wisdom and the strength to deal with lack of it or too much of it. That we can use it wisely if we're given it, but trust you if we don't have it, that you will provide. Let it be just the most powerful tool for worship And help our act of giving be one of worship like singing or praying or anything else that we do for you, God. Help it to be another form of of a way we can connect with you in your name. Amen. See you next week.